0: And welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast, the show that brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques digital editor Tristan Free, and in this podcast, I'll explore the latest developments from across the life sciences, speaking to leaders in their field and people who can provide new perspectives on established topics, while examining how we can advance in the most ethical and progressive ways. Today, I'll be looking at the gene editing technique CRISPR. When CRISPR first burst onto the genomics scene in 2012, was met with huge amounts of excitement, with many lauding it as a miracle cure for all kinds of diseases. My guest today is Geoffrey Siwo. Geoffrey is currently an assistant research professor at the Centre for Research Computing at the Eck Institute of Global Health at the University of Notre Dame. His research focuses on accelerated and equitable innovation using emerging computational technologies such as artificial intelligence and gene editing technologies. By 2018, Jeffrey had spotted that the development of CRISPR was not occurring in an equitable manner, with huge variations in the geographic location and genders of, of both the scientists carrying out the research and the genomes in which the technique was being tested, leading him to consider if we are missing a chance to develop this new technique in a manner that will benefit everyone. Two years after Jeffrey exposed these inequalities in an interview for TED, I wanted to find out what he thinks has changed and if the landscape of CRISPR has improved. So, firstly, Jeffrey, hello. It's fantastic to have you on the podcast.
1: Thanks very much, Chris. I'm good to be here.
0: So, Jeffrey, you, you work with um, a lot of different technologies. W- what was it about CRISPR that caught your eye and made you want to select it as a focus for your work?
1: So, well, CRISPR involves the biology of virus-like elements in genomes. And this is something that has excited me for several years. Uh, it is an area of biology that is also growing... Exponentially, with a lot of promise in medicine. In addition, there's a range of computational approaches I work with. So, from simple pattern recognition approaches to artificial intelligence. And all of these are needed to harness to far effectively. So, one of the main reasons I became a computational biologist is that way back in 2002, during my undergraduate uh, degree, I was extremely interested in retrovirus-like elements in the human genome. Uh, This constitutes about 8% uh, of the genome. And these retrovirus-like elements, I was very interested in how they could interact with a virus like HIV. Now, CRISPR bears several similarities with these retrovirus-like elements in the human genome. Importantly, both are mobile genetic elements. So their sequences are derived from other viruses that become integrated into their host uh, genomes. For CRISPR, it's bacterial uh, bacterial genomes uh, that uh, take in some pieces of viral genomes as a means to identify those viruses when they infect them in future. So it's basically a bacterial immune system, and for endogenous an viruses in the human genome. There are ancient retroviruses integrated into the germline of our ancestors. And these retrovirus like elements in our genomes are important in reproductive biology and possibly also shape our innate uh, immunity. Uh, The convergence of the biology of CRISPR uh, together with its promise in medicine and uh, the rapid growth uh, of the industry, uh, when that converges with my deep interest in uh, AI, it just makes
0: it very natural uh, for my work to focus on that area. And uh, in so, in 2018, um, your paper, "The Global State of Genome Editing," um, highlighted many disparities in CRISPR research, um, including sort of under underrepresentation of papers from African countries, uh, despite the prevalence of genome editing technologies um, in efforts to eradicate malaria, which is obviously. Um, abundant on the, uh, the African continent. Um, why do you think this disparity exists and has it improved since your paper was released?
1: So, one of the main reasons that this disparity exists is that you need uh, several technical resources, for example uh, laboratories, in order to do gene editing uh, experiments. And uh, these are very hard to come by uh, in the developing uh, world. In fact, over the past uh, two years, we've also been tracking uh, the uh, quantity of CRISPR plasmids that are being shipped across different countries from the AdGene uh, plasmid repository. And from this, we've learned that there's a very strong correlation between the number of CRISPR publications in a country and the number of CRISPR plasmids ordered by scientists in the country. So countries that lack access to these uh, resources, like CRISPR plasmids, are more likely to, uh, are also less likely to publish, uh, more in the CRISPR area. The other critical, uh, factor contributing to disparities is, uh, is funding. And, uh, over the past two years, we've also been tracking, uh, uh funding, uh, and we we'll see that most of the funding for CRISPR's, CRISPR research in the U.S. comes from, uh, the NIH. Uh, so clearly when uh, there are disparities in funding, Uh, Then we expect to see also similar disparities in uh, CRISPR uh, publications that rely on the same funding uh, mechanisms. Uh, The good thing though is that over the past two years, uh, we see that there's more countries now that are involved in CRISPR uh, research and we see that in terms of uh, the number of publications coming across uh, uh, different countries. We still see that uh, US and uh, China uh, by far still lead, uh, in terms of the publications in, uh, in CRISPR. Uh, unfortunately, there's still, uh, much less people of color in, uh, uh, in the industry. And also we see that, uh, the gender gap, uh, still, uh, persists, especially when you look at, uh, principal investigators in CRISPR, uh, uh, studies. Uh, and I think now that we're dealing with, uh, COVID, uh, 19, there's even more risk that some of these gaps will continue to widen.
0: And uh, and what why is it that the, the COVID-19 pandemic will, will impact those gaps and, and cause them to widen?
1: So, well, because uh, uh, if you look across the world, there's been uh, different measures uh, in terms of lockdowns uh, of varying degrees uh, across the world. And... Uh, With these lockdowns, it means that uh, there has been less access to the laboratories. uh, And the areas in the world that uh, uh, are already uh, underrepresented in CRISPR research are also the places where there have been very strict uh, 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 lockdowns. Uh, So you can imagine that uh, because of this, there's going to be even bigger impact on researchers in those areas, because they're not able to uh, easily access those labs. They also rely on reagents uh, that are uh, shaped uh, uh, globally. Uh, and uh, there has been a lot of disruption uh, in the transport industry. So there's also a lack of uh, access to reagents uh, due to COVID-19.
0: I see. And um, so obviously it follows on from the fact that there the majority of CRISPR research is occurring outside um, of Africa and mostly in, in China or in the US. And then that means that a lot of the genomes that are being used um, are from East Asian or white North American and European populations. So at the time of your that paper back in 2018, you noted that you were attempting to include more diverse genetic data um, that could be used to create algorithms capable of designing improved CRISPR designs. How is that aspect of your work progressing?
1: So, so this is an important question because... Uh there has been a huge disparity in terms of the uh, genome sequences coming from different world uh, populations, with uh, uh, predominant uh, overrepresentation of uh, Caucasian uh, genomes. Uh, fortunately, we have a collaboration with uh, Sarah Tischkoff at the University of uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, through that collaboration, we now have access to a large, diverse data set of uh, hundreds of genomes from several parts of uh, Africa. So we are working on assessing the potential impacts that specific genetic variants in uh, these genomes could have on on and off target effects of CRISPR and how this could inform selection of uh, CRISPR that can target a large proportion of the population. So there have been at least uh, two studies that uh, have looked at uh, a large number of uh, uh, genomes, like from the 1,000 Genomes uh, Projects, and based on those studies, they have seen that uh, there is some genetic variation at uh, therapeutically important CRISPR target sites in uh, the human genome.
0: In terms of designing improved CRISPR designs, um, do you think that this means trying to use that more um, diverse genetic data to create... Um, a form of CRISPR that is applicable for um, people from all, all over the world and all different um, races and genders? Um, or do you think it's more of a case of making it easier to design CRISPRs that are specific um, for individuals, dependent on their race, their um, geographical location, their, um, their gender? Um, so is it more of a one-size-fits-all model that we, we should be aiming towards, or is it more of a personalized model that we're looking for?
1: So I think it's going to be a mix of uh, both, so something in between. We can say it's sort of uh, a one-size-fits-many, where many is uh, categories of uh, patients. And uh, this can be categories based on the genetic variants they have, at those places that are targeted by, uh, by CRISPR uh, and I think by this way it's possible to find uh, an optimal combination of CRISPR design that works for a very large uh, uh, population so the problem of trying to personalize it so much to each individual patient is that first of all you need to uh, sequence the genomes of uh, uh, those patients and then to choose your targets based on, uh, the sequence or genome sequence of those patients. But then that becomes a problem when, uh, you're trying to develop a therapeutic, especially when trying to get, uh, regulatory approval, uh, because of, because each of your CRISPR designs, uh, might have different, uh, levels of, uh, efficiency as well as, uh, safety. And it may not be easy to, uh, tell that without, uh, running different clinical uh, clinical trials. So I think the way forward might be to find uh, an optimal uh, design strategy that uh, covers a large proportion of uh, population segments.
0: Brilliant. Um, and what other areas of CRISPR do you think that your work has impacted?
1: So our work has played some role in informing uh, some of the discussions on uh, CRISPR research uh, globally. Uh, So, for example, in 2019, there was a science magazine uh, story on uh, CRISPR in China and uh, science magazine relied on uh, some of our data uh, in order to assess the global trends of uh, CRISPR uh, research. The other area where our work is having an impact is that uh, we've been uh, studying how uh, delivery of CRISPR uh, into cells. Uh, results into other une- unexpected consequences. Uh, so just to give one example, uh, CRISPR has, uh, an RNA, uh, molecule. And normally when you deliver RNA molecules into cells, uh, cells respond to the RNA molecule as it were a virus. Uh, so this antiviral response that, uh, cells make, uh, to any RNA, we also see it with, uh, uh with CRISPR. Uh, and so, based on that work, we're beginning to identify some small molecules that could be used to modulate the impact of uh, delivery of CRISPR uh, into cells and sort of to manage that uh, response. Sometimes this response, the cells make towards CRISPR, can have uh, negative consequences on uh, editing. Uh, because, for instance, the antiviral response would end up uh, degrading the CRISPR RNA. So being able to manage this with small molecules could increase the efficiency uh, of editing. And then another example where our work is having an impact is that basically we've uh, also found that uh, when cells make this uh, response uh, towards uh, CRISPR delivery, can help us identify small molecules that could have a broad spectrum uh, antiviral effects. And uh, by broad spectrum, I mean that uh, these small molecules can potentially uh, inhibit the activity of a wide range uh, of viruses, and this is because these small molecules basically trigger uh, the antiviral response within cells, uh, and we are currently exploring how to use this to identify potential potential small molecules that could inhibit uh, SARS-CoV-2.
0: Fascinating. So, so CRISPR could be used, um, or CRISPR systems could be used as small molecule drug targets to to target SARS CoV two.
1: Yes. So basically, uh, by studying the response that SARS make towards uh, CRISPR, uh, which is an antiviral response, uh, we could identify small molecules that uh, uh, either activate that response. In which case, those small molecules become broad spectrum antiviral drugs. Or we could identify small molecules that uh, downregulate those antiviral responses, which could help enhance the uh, efficiency of CRISPR editing.
0: I see. So it's not the CRISPR itself; it's the uh, the molecule stimulated by, by the re- response to CRISPR. So uh, earlier in earlier in your response there, you mentioned you mentioned CRISPR in China. So obviously, around the time of your paper, I think just after it, there was the the controversy of the uh, CRISPR-edited babies, where two babies were edited, or two embryos, um, I should say, um, had their genomes edited to make them uh, invulnerable to HIV, Uh, or that was the target. That was then followed by a massive outcry, both in China and in in the international research community, um, which then led to the, uh, the arrest of He Jin Kui. Since that event, have you seen any uh, particular change in policy or um, an increase in regulation around CRISPR research? Do you see this as something, um, a one-off that the, uh, the CRISPR community now has a, a hold on to prevent anything like this happening again? Or do you think that we're at risk of some uh, a similar uh, event occurring in the near future? So
1: there has definitely been more conversations, uh, which is a good place to uh start. uh the wildlife organization uh or who established uh, an expert panel in 2018 to basically examine the scientific ethical uh, social and legal challenges associated with the human genome uh editing and uh, we're beginning to see the work of this uh, expert uh, panel uh so in 2019 uh who launched a human gene editing registry uh, which currently includes, uh, somatic and germline, uh, clinical trials involving, uh, CRISPR. So these are very encouraging and much needed, uh, steps. I think though, uh, going forward, uh, the world needs new policy frameworks for managing exponentially growing, uh, technologies like CRISPR and, uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, if you look at our policy today, it tends to occur at a slower pace uh, than the pace of uh, exponential technology. Also, most policy frameworks work very well within highly institutionalized settings, so for instance, uh, universities. Uh, CRISPR and AI, on the other hand, are not really conf- confined to these conventional settings. So we need to also develop new frameworks of policy, governance and enforcement that take uh, this into account.
0: So earlier in the podcast, going back to that case of the inequalities in terms of the genomes that are being tested and the researchers carrying out the research, um, you you said that essentially um, the the landscape has not changed much in terms of um, there being a, a big uptake in research being conducted in, in Africa or in other um, developing continents or areas. How do you think that we can begin to address this um what do you think needs to be done to increase the diversity of researchers conducting this research and and also the diversity of genomes being studied is it is it more efforts like yours is it that we need to have uh, more more influence from um from higher up in terms of the funding levels and um, things like that uh, what is your opinion on how we can start to try and move this forward yes
1: yeah, so i think we need a mixed set of things so in terms of uh, one of the most pressing uh, issues that needs to be addressed, uh, especially as uh, some of the CRISPR therapeutics begin to move to the clinic, is the issue of uh, cost. Cost is a very important uh, issue, especially given that some of the early CRISPR cells that are ongoing uh, rely on uh, ex vivo uh, delivery of uh, the therapeutic. So ex vivo in the sense that Cells from the patient are uh, taken, modified in the lab, and then injected back into the patient. And this is a very expensive process uh, that cannot be easily done uh, in many parts uh, of the world. So there needs to be more shift to uh, developing uh, in vivo uh, therapeutic approaches uh, where the therapy can be directly delivered uh, into the patient. Definitely, we need more uh, investment in terms of, uh, finding, uh, finding a more diverse, uh, uh site of, uh, researchers to work on, uh, on CRISPR. Uh, the good thing is that there is now more awareness of the underrepresentation of minorities in CRISPR, uh, research, uh, by scientists. And uh, I think we're beginning to see, to see, uh, scientists take some uh, proactive decisions, uh, to try and, uh, uh ensure that it's more diverse uh, uh representation. Uh but I think funding uh in the long term is going to be uh to be key. There's also like uh, uh a range of efforts uh that are trying to uh ensure that there is uh inclusivity and participation of communities uh where some of the uh CRISPR-based technologies uh, uh may be employed. So for instance for the control of uh, malaria. There are organizations like uh, Target Malaria that are specifically uh, working with uh, communities in in Africa uh, to begin to anticipate uh, uh, the kind of governance structures that might be uh, needed uh, to manage uh, uh, CRISPR-based technologies. Uh, So I think these efforts are playing a very important uh, role, uh, especially when it comes to building the regulatory capacity that is needed, but more investment is needed when it comes to building the diverse technical expertise in CRISPR research.
0: Okay, and finally, so so with those efforts that you've just outlined there that are occurring, but then also bearing in mind the, the slow progress and also the, the lack of investment from, from higher up the chain, do you have hope that CRISPR is going to evolve into an equitable technology um, that will be as efficient um, and practical for everyone in the world, as it um, as it could be.
1: Yes, so I am hopeful. I am uh, hopeful because uh, uh, we're beginning to see that uh, uh, there's more appreciation of the underrepresentation. Uh, so because of that, it's laying the groundwork needed uh, to build uh, a diverse, uh, CRISPR workforce that could then ensure that it develops into. Uh, an equitable technology. There's also high-level efforts. For instance, uh, in Africa, there is uh, the African Union new partnership for Africa's development uh, that is working to establish some uh, governance frameworks uh, when it comes to deploying uh, gene drive technologies that use CRISPR. Uh, I'm very hopeful that these efforts will eventually lead to CRISPR being an equitable technology. I think we're also fortunate because we are still in the early stages of CRISPR. We have a role we can play uh, today and to shape it into an equitable uh, technology. I'd just like to add that uh, there's efforts in the direction to uh, ensure that uh, CRISPR is developed into uh, therapeutics that could be widely uh, accessible. So for example, uh, the NIH in collaboration with uh, Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation uh, are investing uh, 200 million to develop affordable uh, gene-based cures for sickle cell, sickle cell disease, uh, and this initiative is placing emphasis on in vivo uh, delivery. So this creates even a greater hope.
0: Fantastic. I, I think that's the uh, the really key thing is the point you've just made there is that it is at that early stage of development. There is still time to um, to impact its development and make sure that it is developed equitably. Um, and with um, equal use in, in mind and it's incredibly valuable to have researchers such as yourself um, who identify things like this and and act to change it not just um, raising awareness but actually changing their research um, and conducting um, research to try and bridge those gaps in uh, in genome representation um, or, or further down the line um, so thank you very much for coming onto the podcast for today jeffrey yes
1: yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: And thank you to our listeners for listening to this episode. If you've been interested by the topics discussed, you can find many more materials in the Biotechniques Spotlight on CRISPR, currently live at www.biotechniques.com. You can find previous episodes either on site or on ACAST, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts by searching Talking Techniques. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. And good